edition of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast. My name is Tom Ford. Thanks for your company. Unlike many names from the Golden Age, that of Albert Tibby Cotter is one that is perhaps not revered today with the same nostalgic strain as, say, a Trumper, Grace or Ranjit Singhji. Fast bowlers were seen as the graceless, lesser form of Edwardian cricket, the working-class necessity compared to their batting counterparts, and Tippy Cotter was certainly that. He was a wayward, fast Australian bowler, both on and off the field, one of the first who purposely chose to frighten batsmen with short pitch deliveries, much to the ire of the English press and fans. His success was achieved through bursts of energy rather than endurance, but proved to be a popular figure with Australian crowds because of his entertaining pluck. As his bowling feet slipped further and further from our minds, He is perhaps best remembered today for being the only Australian test cricketer to have made the ultimate sacrifice in the First World War, when he perished in 1917 during the Battle of Bathsheba as a member of the 12th Light Horse Regiment. My guest today is Max Bonnell, a lawyer and writer from Sydney. He has published around 20 books on sports history and legal topics. He played grade cricket for about 20 years for Western Suburbs and Sydney University, plus a season in the Birmingham League as what he describes as a, quote, very uncotter-like medium pacer. Max is a life member of the Sydney University Cricket Club and the Sydney Cricket Association. In 2012, Max co-authored with Andrew Sproul a biography on today's subject titled Tibby Cotter, Fast Bowler, Larrikin, Anzac. And I welcome Max to the podcast as my special guest. Hello, Max. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Max, it's, uh, it's fair to say that uh, Tibby Cotter is not the first name uh, which immediately comes to mind when we think of the golden age, the so-called golden age of cricket. So what made you turn your attention to him and write his biography? Ah, well... The, the, the short answer to that is um, uh, I didn't turn my attention to him. Uh, there's a, a much longer answer, which is that uh, I didn't really think about writing about Cotter because, um, to my way of thinking, he was a bit too well-known. Um, and uh, quite a bit has been written about him in the past, not in a single book, but in stray writings here and there uh, by people like Jack Pollard. Um, and so I thought he was, the outline of his life was too well known to really require a further examination. But Andrew Sproul uh, developed an enthusiasm for Cotter's story and did quite a bit of research on it and then got to the point where I don't think it's unfair to him to say, um, having gathered a fair amount of material, he didn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, and he wanted some assistance shaping it into uh, a book form. And so he was put in touch with me as someone who might be able to help. Uh, and I decided to have a look at it. And I thought that perhaps there was more to the story than I had originally thought. Uh, So I started adding my own research to his, uh, and the book is the result of that. Um, I have a a sort of rule in the writing that I do that I won't try to publish anything unless it adds to the record, unless there's something new there that people didn't know before. Um, There are a lot of people who write what passes for sports history who basically rehash and synthesize what's already out there Um, and whilst there's a place for that um, it's not what interests me and I I like to find things that are new and unknown and I think in this one we did enough of that to make it worthwhile. Having read your book it's uh, very evident that Tibby himself was not uh, a writer 
Um, he, uh, I think, left very few letters and uh, certainly, um, I don't think, kept a diary, um, which can make it difficult for the biographer. Um, so what primary sources were most hep- helpful to you in reconstructing his life? Yeah, well, this is it w- was a deep frustration because the only words of his own that we have uh, come when he spoke to newspapers, and that didn't happen very often, uh, or in a few postcards he sent home from his fa- to his family from various tours, uh, and. You know, they tend to not go very much past having a great time, wish you were here. So he wasn't, words weren't his strong point. He, he wasn't a, a writer of any sort. And that's difficult because particularly in this period, the way into a person's character is through the documents he leaves behind, the, 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 uh, the letters, the diaries and so on. And with Cotter, there was almost nothing. So you're, you're left reconstructing uh, who he was from what he did rather than from what he said. Uh, and that paints a particular picture. Uh, but um, you don't get into the depths of his mind. Uh, and one possible reason for that is that they didn't run very deep. Um, he wasn't a very complicated character. As mentioned in my introduction, Tibby is largely remembered uh, today for being the first um, and one of only two Australian test cricketers. Um, I think Ross Gregory is the other one during the Second World War uh, to have died in an official conflict. Um, We often still today read these terrible analogies between sport and and war. Um, Was it important to you as his biographer um, not to make a martyr of Tibby and to report on his death as accurately as possible? Yeah, I think what we really wanted to do was simply find out what happened Um, because uh, the moment Cotter died, um, his death and also to some extent his life Uh, just became smothered in a layer of mythology uh, because it was compulsory in Australia uh, to present his death as heroic, sacrificial, uh, patriotic. Um, You know, it's, it's very instructive to go back and look at the kinds of things that were written at that time about the war and death in war. Um, and the, the themes, because you couldn't say anything negative about it. You couldn't say, your son has died, uh, it's a terrible thing, what a waste. Uh, you had to say, your son has died, what a glorious sacrifice for the good of his country, what a noble way to die. Uh, because um, obviously support for the war effort was was considered paramount uh, and the requirement to maintain morale and support for the war uh, meant that you had to write about deaths in a particular way. Um, Now, what that meant was that it was very difficult to get to the truth Uh, about what happened with Cotter uh, because to get there first you had to get underneath all all the layers of mythology that accumulated over the next 70 to 80 years. Well, we're going to return to Tibby's death uh, in greater detail later uh, in the podcast but first we go all the way back to the beginning. Um, Albert Cotter was born on the 3rd of December in 1883 in Sydney and he was the sixth and youngest son of parents John and Margaret. Uh, Max, what can you tell us about his early life and what, if any, 
influence cricket played in those early days? Yeah, well, his father um, and I think his mother migrated from England in about 1850. Uh, We don't have a precise record of when they arrived. Um, And that suggests that they had some means uh, because the records, the reliable immigration records that survived from that period uh, are records of what were called assisted passengers who received a government subsidy for migrating to Australia. The fact that they don't show up on that list suggests that they had the means to come out on their own. Uh, so not wealthy, but but um, reasonably prosperous, um, I think. They then set up uh, a butcher's shop in Phillip Street, um, where in the heart of Sydney, um, they shared that uh, building with uh, a confectioner and a milliner. So it was an unlikely combination of sights and smells in the one location. Uh, That's where Cotter was born in 1883. Uh, He was one of six siblings. There were four brothers. Uh, And I think he was about number five of the six. He was one of the younger ones. Uh, And the family did well. Uh, So at some stage in his childhood, they moved to the suburb of Glebe, which is in the inner west of Sydney. Uh, They bought a large block of land, uh, which they actually purchased from the Allen family, who had previously owned that entire area. Uh, The, uh, that's not quite right, the Church of England owned another slab of it. And the Allens uh, are relevant to cricket because uh, one of the sons, Reginald, played a a test match for Australia in 1887. Uh, And Reginald actually signed the contract selling the land to Tibby Cotter's father. And so they they grew up in the Glebe, which is an area with lots of parks, lots of open spaces. There's lots of running around. uh, And Tibby starts to play cricket at that point. There's no cricket in the family before that generation. If his father ever played, there's no record of it. Um, But um, four boys running around in Sydney in the um, 1880s, 1890s are bound to pick up a cricket bat at some point. Where did the nickname Tibby actually come from? Um, Because from what I understand, having read your book, um, it's quite unusual for someone to have this name throughout their entire life. Um, Certainly with sportsmen, uh, these sorts of nicknames don't materialise until they've entered a sort of professional career. But Tibby seems to have had it from a very young age. Uh, Was it somehow related to his relative short stature? I don't look... That's the starting assumption, but I don't think it's right. Uh, And this troubled me enormously, and um, I spent a disproportionate amount of time trying to find the answer. Uh, Tibby doesn't appear in the vernacular anywhere applied to a male. So it's quite common in in this period in Scotland where it's... Uh, an abbreviation of Elizabeth, or sometimes an abbreviation of Tabitha, and sometimes a vernacular expression for a prostitute. But none of those really seem to fit Tibby. Uh, so where does it come from? Um, look, um, the, the way I think of it is this. Um, there was a very good fast bowling all-rounder who played grade cricket uh, at the same time I did for Sydney University in Northern District called Darby Coyle. And his name was not Darby, it was David. 
but his family, which was even larger than the Cotter family, I think he was one of nine or ten, called him Darby because when he was a child, that was his attempt at saying David. And so he became Darby. And I, my hunch, which can never be anything more than this, is that that's where Tibby came from. He was called Bertie. He couldn't quite get Bertie out. He said Tibby, and the family started calling him Tibby, and it stuck. Uh, now, that, I think, is the most plausible explanation, and there's absolutely no evidence for it whatsoever. <laughs> well, as his biographer, we'll have to take your your word for it. Um, Max, I think you mentioned in your opening uh, answer uh, to this podcast that uh, Tibby wasn't particularly uh, academic, um, but he went to school in Sydney, uh, first to Forest Lodge Public School, where um, the headmaster of that school uh, was the father of a one of his future uh Testmates in Warren Bardsley. Um, what were Tibby's schooling days actually like? Uh, messy uh, is, is, is the short answer. Forest Lodge is the local public school near um, Glebe Point Road where Tibby lived as a child. Uh, by the time he got there, Uh, it was massively overcrowded. Um, In the space of a few years, enrolments shot up from around 400 to over 1,000. And if you look at the education department uh, reports on the school from this period, they criticise poor discipline, uh, chronic absenteeism uh, on any day 20% of the students on average didn't turn up. Um, And so William Bardsley, who was the headmaster, who no doubt was a very uh, diligent, um, hardworking headmaster, uh, was fighting a losing battle with inadequate resources, trying to cope with uh, far too many students. But having said that, they had a very good cricket team. Uh, And in the whole period when Cotter was at school there, uh, there's no record of Forest Lodge losing a game to anyone. Uh, And typically they bat first and score 150 and then bowl their opponents out for 12. Um, And Cotter returns ridiculous figures like seven for three and six for four and things like that. Uh, Warren Bardsley gets most of the runs, although Cotter did hit 84 in a school match at one point uh, in very short time. Uh, Bear in mind, too, that at the school, but a bit younger and not yet able to get into the cricket team, is Charles Kellaway. So three future test players trotting around in the school. Um, Also there uh, is Douglas Mawson, the uh, Antarctic explorer. Uh, So it's quite an interesting environment. And Cotter just uh, starts playing school cricket, makes a little bit of an impact there, and then naturally gravitates to the the local, uh, what what we'd now call a grade club, the Electorate Cricket Club of Glebe. Uh, And he and Warren Bardsley go down there and start playing in the lower grades. His, His father decides to put some polish on him and he sends him to Sydney Grammar School for his last couple of years and uh, that's an interesting choice because Sydney Grammar School has an academic emphasis you learn a lot of Latin there Uh, but it also is very serious about its sport and I think the idea was uh, to put a bit of refinement uh, onto the uh, the boy by putting him in a more disciplined, uh, genteel environment because grammar is a fee-paying school, uh, so the sons of well-to-do people go there. And he does well to the extent that he plays in the rugby team and he plays in the cricket team. Uh, His cricket 
he has two seasons there and it's interesting uh, because the master in charge of cricket was a man called George Barber, uh, father of Eric Barber, the New South Wales batsman who was an approximate contemporary of Cotter. And George Barber is exactly what you would imagine uh, a Latin teacher would be if he became a cricket coach. Uh, he wants batsmen to play straight. He wants bowlers to be accurate. Um, he wants boots to be white. Uh, he wants everything to be orderly. And Cotter breezes into his team as uh, this gust of disorder. Uh, and Barber doesn't particularly like it. Uh, so if you read the reports that Barber writes on, on the school matches... Uh, they're full of uh, comments like, Cotter's, like Cotter will take five for 20 and the comment will be Cotter's bowling was less wild than usual. Um, so Cotter is not... The, 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 the guy who is George Barber's kind of cricketer is a left-arm medium pacer called Herbert Allen uh, who bowls at the stumps and bowls a good length and moves the ball a little bit and does the same thing week in, week out. And, and the coach likes that. Uh, Alan plays a little bit of first-grade cricket and then fades into obscurity. But in his second year at Grammar, Cotter took 110 wickets, which even allowing for the fact that Barber scheduled a lot of games outside of the school competition matches is a lot. Um, and he was selected to play for the New South Wales second 11 while he was still at school, really on the basis of his performances for Sydney Grammar. Um, he'd he'd um, only played five first grade games for Glebe at that point. Um, so again, that's a transition that just doesn't happen anymore. You don't get people picked out of private school cricket in Sydney to play state second 11 games. Uh, and that probably achieved most of what the Cotter family uh, expected to achieve from his time at grammar. Uh, and he was then pulled out of the school before he needed to sit any exams. And it does seem, uh, as you mentioned, um, his sudden appearance for the New South Wales second 11, that his rise to the highest level of international cricket, uh, it does seem to have happened very fast. Um, after his first class debut for New South Wales, which happens in um, the later stages of the 1901-02 season, um, he makes his test debut against the famous MCC-selected uh, England touring side of 1903-04. Um, was it as meteoric as all that? Um, yeah, yeah, it was. He, he was picked for one game for New South Wales in 1901-02 when Monty Noble was the sole selector for New South Wales. And Noble decided that the side needed some new bowlers. Um, the obvious bowler who should have been picked uh, was the best bowler in New South Wales, who was Jack Marsh. Uh, but Noble didn't care for Marsh uh, and wouldn't pick him. Uh, so he tried some unusual experiments. One of them was Alex Kermode, who got plucked out of the Moore Park competition uh, to open the bowling for New South Wales. Uh, and another was Cotter, who had only played by that stage eight first-grade games without special distinction. He hadn't done anything very remarkable. Uh, his first game was a failure. He was out twice for naught. He didn't take a wicket. He didn't bowl a lot. Uh, and he was overlooked the next season. But the problem New South Wales had at that point was that they had too many bowlers who 
were very similar. Um, you had Noble himself, Bill Howell, um, Bert Hopkins, who all really bowled slow, medium off spin. Uh, Howell spun the ball a bit more than the others. Noble swerved the ball a bit more than the others. But you could still have over after over of slow, medium off spin. And they needed something a bit different. So in January 1904, Cotter got called up against Victoria and he did very well. He took four for 50 in the first innings, a couple of wickets in the second, made an impact with his speed. Two weeks later, New South Wales played the MCC and he kept his place for that game. Uh, and MCC hammered New South Wales mercilessly. They won by 278 runs. But Cotter again made an impact. He took five for 44 in the first innings, three for 56 in the second. Uh, again, his pace disrupted things. Two weeks later, uh, the fourth test of um, the test series is played. It's in Sydney and Cotter gets picked. So he's gone from playing grade cricket with Glebe to being in the test team in four games. Uh, and that is, that's quite a dramatic rise. Uh, he does all right in his first test. Uh, and I should say, yes, it's meteoric, but for the period, not dramatically unusual. And that's because... There were only three states in the Sheffield Shield, so only 30-odd potential test cricketers. Uh, and the Sheffield Shield was four games a season for each team. So if you got picked halfway through the Sheffield Shield season and did well, you were instantly a test candidate. And this period is full of people like Cotter, like Tom McKibben is another good example, who come out of obscurity, have one really good Shield game or two really good Shield games. There's a test match on the next week and they get picked. So it's, it's rare but not startlingly rare. Anyway, he does well in the first test. He, he unexpectedly goes in at number 11 and hits 34 in the second innings. Um, and... In the second English innings, he took three for 41. Australia got pounded, but he kept his place for the last test of the season, um, which was a consolation victory for Australia. Uh, they caught England on a, a wet pitch and Cotter bowled them out for 61. He took six for 40 uh, from not very many overs. And that was quite a remarkable effort because... Um, Conventional wisdom at the time was that fast bowlers couldn't bowl on wet pitches because they couldn't stand up. Their foot would sli uh, slide when they, when they hit the ground. Uh, but Cotter, by this stage of his life, was incredibly strong, really athletic, had phenomenal balance, and he was able to maintain his footing uh, in very unhelpful conditions. Uh, and... Um, made life very difficult for the batsman down the other end. So within the space of, let's say, six weeks, he's gone from being uh, a club bowler on Saturdays to being the spearhead of the Australian test attack. Yeah, it's a, it's a success story that we just don't see, in, uh, see today in uh, modern cricket. Um, so his success in the 1903-04 Australian season warrants selection for the 1905 tour of England, um, which is led by Joe Darling, uh, the experienced Australian captain, who uh, <laughs> himself wasn't even uh, guaranteed a spot. He was a rather late selection, having um, been busy farming down in Tasmania. He was then selected as the captain of that tour. Um, the 1905 tour was uh, perhaps the high point of Tibby's international career, both reputationally and statistically. Um, the English press heralded him 
as the new Spofforth, um, the famous Australian uh, fast bowler known as the Demon because of his extreme pace. Um, and Tibby ends up taking 121 wickets, first-class wickets, on tour in 1905, uh, including a spell of 7 for 15 against Worcestershire. How do you assess his first tour of England? Well, um, counterintuitively, I, don't, I wouldn't rank it as a high point. And I say that for this reason. Um, early in the tour... He was dreadful. Uh, he, he didn't adjust to the English pitches at all. Uh, his uh, pace was fine, but his line and length were all over the place. Uh, in, in the opening game, um, I forget which side it was against, but it was one of these sorts of teams that uh, the Australians used to encounter on tour a lot uh, in that period which was a scratch side uh, playing under the name of some titled patron, uh, Lord so-and-so's 11. Um, In the opening game, he bowled at WG Grace and hit him uh, in the chest with an unintentional beamer um, because he really had no idea where the ball was going. he played in the um, first test at Nottingham and he did quite well in the first innings. He got um, Stanley Jackson, John Gunn and Tom Hayward. He got three for 50-odd, uh, three for 64 maybe, and he was reasonable. But then in the second innings, England piled up five for 426 uh, and he was ineffective. Uh He didn't really get his act together in the county games uh, and he was dropped from the second and third tests. Now, of course, what happens in England is that as the summer goes on, uh, generally, if you're lucky, the pitches get drier and harder uh, and uh, it became easier for Cotter to um, do what he did best Uh, and he started to trouble a lot of the county sides. He absolutely destroyed Worcestershire. Uh, Worcestershire, he took seven for 15 in the first innings, but, uh, you know, I think there was a burst of seven for three in about three overs at the end. It was pretty dramatic. Uh, And then when Worcestershire batted again, uh, they were five for 51 when the game was washed out, and Cotter had five for 19. Um, so he had 12 for 34 in the game, which is ridiculous. And if you read the reports of that match, they all say that the batsmen simply didn't try. They were simply terrified and got out of there as soon as they could. So he started to click. He came back for the fourth test. Uh, England won by an innings. He took no wickets. Uh, and they kept him in the side for the fifth test. And there... Um, he produces what is statistically his best test performance. Uh, England runs up 430, uh, but Cotter gets through 40 overs uh, and took seven for 148. Um, So expensive, but, um, you know, he's dismissed batsmen like McLaren, Tildesley, Fry, Rhodes, Spooner, some of the great names of English cricket of this period. Uh, and he's shown his ability to get through a lot of work. So, you know, it's an outstanding performance, but not a game-changing one. The game fizzles out into a draw. So he had, on the 1905 tour, he had some remarkable performances against the counties once uh, the pitches quickened up a bit. But his impact on the Test Series was negligible. Whereas in 1909, on the tour as a whole, he took 64 wickets at an average of 29. And if you look at that by the standards of the period, it's pretty underwhelming. But I think he was better in 1909, and I'll explain why. Something different happens on that tour, 
Monty Noble is the captain, and he works out that nobody cares if you draw against Sussex if Mm. you win the Test Series. And no one's ever thought like this before. Everyone's always thought that the, the, the team's record is assessed on overall wins and losses. Um, and Noble's point is, well, who cares about the match against Leicestershire? We want to win the Test Series. And so he doesn't care what Cotter does in the county games as long as he's at his best in the Tests. Um, and so what happens is that the Australians played 37 games, 22 were drawn. Uh, so the, the whole idea of needing to beat the counties was, was not a priority. Um, it rained a lot, which had something to do with the number of draws. But critically, Australia won the Test Series 2-1. Um, and whilst Cotter was indifferent in the county games, he was sharp in the tests. So uh, the first test, uh, Australia lost. Um, the second... Cotter sets up a win with a burst of four wickets in the first innings. Uh, at Leeds, he just demolishes England for 87 in the second innings, takes five for 38. And then the oval test, Australia needs to draw to win the series, and Cotter contributes to that by taking six for 95 in the first innings. So over the test series... He takes 17 wickets at 21. He's easily the leading wicket taker um, for the Australian side. And he contributes materially to the two wins and significantly in the, the, the draw in the last test. So I'd actually argue that whilst if you look at the overall numbers, 1905 looks like the success and 1909 looks like the failure. 1909 is probably the peak of his test career because there he's the spearhead of a side that wins an Ashes series in England. Hmm. Yeah, that's a uh, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, and perhaps we should give uh, credit to Monty Noble uh, for essentially introducing the modern concept of player management. Um, he obviously knew the that the entire tour would have exhausted Tibby. Um, and what I learned reading your book was that Tibby was a player and a bowler who was at his best when he bowled in short bursts. Uh, he was not a player that could just bowl and bowl and bowl. Uh, I think his pace and his form would drop off. And so Monty Noble obviously saw this um, style in um, or approach from Tibby and knew that he wanted to save him for the games that mattered most. Yeah, and this is 100 years before anyone's heard of uh, rotation policies. Uh, And the Australian teams to England always used to try to take as few players as they could get away with Mm. uh, because they were splitting the profits. Uh, and you didn't want to split the profits 16 ways if you could get away with splitting them 14 ways. Mm. Uh, So uh, the burden on players was greater. I mean, Noble's approach outraged uh, the editor of Wisdom who complained that, um, you know, the the county games weren't being treated with the seriousness they deserved. Uh, But there was never any putting that genie back in the bottle. Returning to the 1905 series, um, and uh, it was during this tour as well that uh, Joe Darling, the captain of the Australians, um, revolutionised um, a style of fielding uh, in uh, direct response to what Tibby was sending down as a bowler. Uh, it's generally regarded that during this season, um, Darling introduced what we now know as the modern slip cordon when Tibby was bowling. Um, 
there's a few photographs that exist of field placings before this tour and you see generally there's probably one, uh, if at all, slips. Um, but it's during this 1905 season that uh, uh, the modern slip cordon is introduced, certainly when Tibby is bowling. Um, was Tibby a pioneer on the cricket field? Oh, look, I think so, but um, uh, uh, an accidental one. Uh, it's a bit like uh, Columbus discovering the West Indies when he was looking for India. Um, what, what happened was that, um, not unlike his school coach, George Barber, uh, Joe Darling got a bit frustrated at the fact that you could never really be sure where Cotter was going to bowl. And so he decided that the way to focus Cotter on bowling somewhere near the off stump was to remove all the fieldsmen from the leg side. Uh, so he would typically get Cotter bowling to a 7-2 field uh, with someone at fine leg and someone at mid-on and everyone else on the off side. And what he found when he did that was that if Cotter could bowl consistently somewhere around the off stump, because of his pace, there were a lot of edges. And uh, so he finished up generally with about four men in the slips. And this wasn't something that had typically happened in cricket before. Um, there were obviously slip fieldsmen previously, uh, but the... It had always been associated with negative bowling. So, for example, Tom Garrett, the medium pacer who played for Australia in the first 10 years of, 10, uh, of test cricket, um, was regarded as a terribly negative bowler because his strategy was to bowl just outside off stump with a couple of men in the slips and someone at point and a cover and forced the batsman to play a shot and make a mistake. Uh, and this was derided as bowling for catches, as if it were terribly negative and, and unsportsmanlike. But, of course, we've just described how Glenn McGrath bowls. So mm. um, uh, today we wouldn't regard it as unusual. But no one had ever really thought before of what they called off theory as an attacking move as opposed to a, uh, a negative form of cricket. Uh, and, and yet that's what it became. Uh, so um, the game changes at that point um, and Cotter is an agent of change, even if he's not uh, a terribly conscious of, of what he's doing. Yes, and he does incur the wrath of the English press and fans uh, because of his adoption of repeat short balls to intimidate the opposition batsman, um, which was a tactic that was not really employed uh, previously, certainly not to any great effect. Um, and uh, even though it was in the laws of the game, um, the London referee newspaper, for example, said, and I'm quoting them here, we hope we shall see no more of the monstrous style of bowling adopted by Cotter. To deliberately pitch halfway with no other object than to frighten the batsmen by making the ball go over their heads is emphatically not cricket. What was Cotter's response to this? Uh, unapologetic, I think, uh, would be the, the first place you'd go. There's the, the legendary story of... Um, the earlier Australian fast bowler, Ernie Jones, bowling the ball that goes through W.G. Grace's beard. And he's supposed to have marched down the pitch and said, sorry, doctor, she slipped. Well, Cotter does not apologise. Um, he never developed a particularly reasoned theory of bowling, uh, but there's no question that he deliberately used the fast, short-pitched ball as a means of unsettling the batsman. Uh, and his special target is um, John Tildesley, the Lancashire batsman, who has a reputation in England in this period as being a very fine batsman against fast bowling. Uh, 
uh, and Cotter simply terrorised him. He would just tildesley would come into bat and the first few balls would be around his ears. Uh, and he was never... He did get 100 against Cotter in a test, but overall uh, his, his impact was greatly reduced because Cotter just got under his skin. Uh, and this is, again, something that, that was new to the game because the idea of deliberately intimidatory bowling um, was regarded as shockingly unsportsmanlike, uh, but Cotter was untroubled by that. Yes, and, and this is what I find so fascinating about this period, the so-called golden age, is that we have um, so many of these cricketing conventions uh, that exist during this period, um, largely with uh, in regards to batsmen, amateur batsmen, about how they should be uh, playing a certain stroke um, and when and which part of the ground. And uh, we've certainly heard about this in previous episodes with C.B. Fry and Ranjit Sinji. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, we get uh, these rascally Australians arriving in England uh, and the Australians either are unaware of these conventions or they simply don't care and really challenge the establishment. Warwick Armstrong, for one, is someone who repeatedly uh, tries to stick it up, the cricketing establishment in England, and I would probably uh, place Tibby in that same category as well. Um, Max, uh, let's talk about uh, his actual bowling technique. Um, your book goes into great detail about his uh, his rather unorthodox action. Um, despite the lack of uh, really any footage, there is uh, a brief bit of footage taken from that 1905 tour. He had a very unique action where, and I'm going to do my best to describe it, um, where as he approached the wicket in his final... Um, leap, his, uh, his right foot, being a right-hander, would actually curl behind his left foot. It looks very unusual just before his final landing at the crease. Um, is it fair to say it was an unorthodox action? Yeah, and his arm disappears behind his back and it comes out in a sling. Uh, and this is um, why... You know, one of the things that is generally said to be known about Cotter is that he had a slinging action similar to Jeff Thompson's. Now, that's got a little bit of truth in it. Uh, and, and we know a lot about how he bowled. We, we, we know that for two reasons. Uh, one is that he was photographed a good deal from various angles by George Beldham, the, the um, cricket photographer of the period who published an enormous number of works of photographs of cricketers. Uh, he'd set them up in the middle of the field and um, uh, it, it wasn't match conditions, but they weren't posed photographs. They were action photographs in a posed setting. And, of course, Max, the most famous uh, photo from that series is the Victor Trumper... Uh, stepping out to drive. The Victor Trumper jumping out to drive, yeah, uh, which is is not taken in a game but in that artificial situation. Um, so we've got a lot of those photographs of Cotter and we have two balls from the Nottingham Test of 1905. Uh, and that's interesting, but it's, you've got to be very careful drawing conclusions about it. Uh, you have to be careful for two reasons. One is simply the quality of the film uh, makes it difficult to really know the speed at which things are happening. Uh, and it could be a little deceptive in that respect. Uh, and the um, other reason is that at the time that these two balls were bowled, England was five for 420 and about to declare, and Cotter was really going through the motions. Mm. So he doesn't look particularly terrifying on on the um, 
the, the two balls of him that we have. Um, what distinguishes him from Jeff Thompson is this. If you, uh, if you recall um, Thompson at his peak, which is probably uh, the 1974-75 series against England and the series against the West Indians the following year, um, what made Thompson so difficult was not speed per se, although he was certainly faster than anyone else, but dangerous bounce, uh, bounce from a good length. Um, so the ball would just rear up unexpectedly. And the reason for that was that when he bowled, his left leg, his front leg, was braced absolutely straight. And that meant two things. One was... Um, a much more complete transfer of body weight forward when the arm swung over. And the other was a much higher delivery point, which is where that steepling bounce comes from. Now, what Cotter did was when he got into his delivery stride, his front leg collapses, his left knee bends, and he actually bowled from quite a low position. He was about five foot eight, which is average height, maybe even on the tall side for the time. Uh, but it's not the kind of height that of itself is going to generate a lot of bounce. Um, and he bowled really from quite a low position. So if you were going to compare slingers, I'd say that he was more a malinga than um, a... Um, uh, a Thompson, mm. although the truth is he was somewhere in the middle. His arm was a little bit more uh, vertical than Malinga's, uh, but nowhere near as high as Thompson's. This is Malinga from Sri Lanka, of course. Sri Lanka, yeah. Now, Malinga was, was virtually a round arm. He, his arm was really parallel to the ground. Cotter was a bit higher than that, uh, but he didn't have that... Um, dangerous trajectory that Thompson uh, did have because of that technical flaw in his action of the, the collapse of the front leg. Thanks for listening to part one on the life and career of Albert Tibby Cotter with my special guest, Max Bonnell. Keep an eye out for part two by subscribing to the podcast now. I'm Tom Ford. Thanks for your company. <laughs>